The Secret Church podcast is a resource from Radical.net. For The Secret Church 2 study guide and other resources that go along with this audio, visit Radical.net slash SC2. And this is Secret Church 2, Episode 4. Okay. 1 Corinthians. Now, 1 Corinthians is, is written to the church in Corinth. Now, we know a little bit about Corinth. Corinth was really a more Greek city than it was, um, than it was Roman. And it was, it, was pretty, uh, it was pretty immoral. I mean, Paul wrote the book of Romans from Corinth. It's not a good commentary on your city when somebody's writing a letter about the wrath of God and says, it says they've been given over to evil, greed, depravity. Their sinful nature is just full. It's not a good picture of Corinth. In fact, to Corinthianize was a term that was used to refer to sexual immorality. The, there, was a, there was a temple to the goddess Aphrodite in Corinth, and there were literally... Day after day, thousands of temple prostitutes that were available, both men and women, to male worshipers. And so that's why you even see homosexuality mentioned in the very beginning of the book of Rome, first chapter of Romans. It's the picture that was there in Corinth. It was not an easy place to be. When you see Paul there in Acts chapter 18, which we'll look at a little later, we know it's not an easy place to be. And so he's writing to this church amidst a very pagan city, and he's trying to encourage them. But what had happened was it had been a divided church. He's writing to a divided church in Corinth. And some people are following Paul's teaching. Other people are following this guy's teaching or that guy's teaching. And you've got all these different leaders in the church, and everybody's trying to figure out who they're going to follow. And they're in different camps. And he's writing them to try to unify them around one thing. The primary theme is the wisdom of the cross. Wisdom of the cross. The need to see the foundational nature of the cross we don't, we don't follow Paul. We don't follow Apollos. We follow Christ. He is the one around whom our lives revolve. The cross is where we find our unity. From Romans, or 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 through 31, you see the cross and the wisdom of the cross against the foolishness of man emphasized, and it continues throughout. In fact, you notice the letter's bookends. When you read this letter, you'll see the cross at the very beginning and at the very end, chapter 15, a triumphant chapter on the resurrection. A great passage on the resurrection in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So you've got the cross and the resurrection. And in between, you've got basically a theology of the cross and how the cross affects our ethics and how the cross affects our priorities and how the cross affects our attitudes and the cross affects the church and the cross affects how we worship and the cross affects all these different things. Cross-centered ministries at the center of the book of Romans. I want you to see how Paul addresses, when you read through that, at least 11 different issues in the church. Over and over again, he's primarily responding to issues, including the purpose of spiritual gifts, regulations for worship, sexual immorality. So you've got to put yourself in the shoes of those in Corinth at that time and hear what Paul is saying, because he's reacting to these things. He's not just saying, I'm going to give you a list of regulations for worship that will be... That, that, that will be the regulations we use for thousands of years. He's responding to how they were worshiping and offering correctives for those things. That's something we need to understand when we come to the book of 1 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians is somewhat similar. Written to a church that, frankly, hadn't received the first letter very well, and there was still a lot of need. There's still dissension there. So the primary theme is reconciliation in the body of Christ. Reconciliation in the body of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new what? creation. 
Old is gone as new has come. Then it begins, begin, goes on to talk about how we are reconciled to God through Christ. Now, that's a passage that many times we use to share the gospel, to show people who don't have faith in Christ that we become new in Christ. But don't forget, Paul wrote that to the church. He's saying, don't you realize a church that's divided, don't you realize that Christ died to reconcile you not only to God but to man? that we need to be reconciled to each other in the church. That's part of why Christ died, so that we would be new creations. The old is gone. Stop acting like the world. You're the church. Reconciled to one another. This is ridiculous, he's saying. Be done with this dissension. And so you see four main elements in this letter. Paul's explanation of his plans to come visit Corinth, his collection for the church in Jerusalem, which is 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, Paul's defense of apostleship and ministry. You see some pretty deep emotions from Paul, his defense here, because people were doubting whether or not, but doubting his apostleship, basically. And then Paul's concern about Jewish Christian opponents to the gospel. Overall structure... You see that there. I want to encourage you, when you read 2 Corinthians, you can get bogged down in some of the details of the things that he's addressing. I want to encourage you to feel the heart of Paul in this book. It's one of his most personal and intimate letters in the New Testament. So feel his heart and look for these themes, forgiveness, restoration, which we talked about, Christian giving as an expression of generosity. You know, the whole picture of the tithe that we see in the Old Testament is not in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Instead, you see instead of this law that says you give this in Malachi chapter 3, what you see is the generosity of God's people with the resources God's entrusted to them. And you see Paul talking about how poor churches were gathering money together to help the church in Jerusalem, and they were indebted to believers around the world. So you see those themes all throughout 2 Corinthians. Okay, Galatians. Remember, Galatians was written around the Jerusalem conference, either right before, sometime in the middle of that happening. And so you see Paul addressing some of the issues between Jews and Gentiles. It's written in response to the Jerusalem conference, which basically we had asked the question, on what ground are Gentiles going to be brought into the people of God? Paul's an apostle of the Gentiles, so he sees the need to address this issue. So he's countering these Judaizers, which are basically people who are putting regulations and, uh, on Gentiles in order to enter the church. And Paul flat out condemns the false gospel. And he calls it a false gospel in chapter 1, verse 6 through 9. He condemns the false gospel of faith and works. Faith plus works. Gentiles, you trust in Christ and you get circumcised and you do this, then you're, you're a part of the people of God. And Paul says, no, that's ridiculous. And it's a sharp edge in Paul's teaching. He condemns this gospel, the false gospel. He said, it's faith plus works equals justification. The true gospel is faith is justification that leads to works. Are works in Paul's letters part of salvation? Well, yes, not part of being justified before God, but as a result of our walk with Christ. And we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We walk with him, and our life shows the effects of our faith. But that's not what saves us. Our works do not save us. The work of Christ saved us, and it's faith and faith alone. You don't boast about what you've done to get to Christ. That's what he's saying over and over again in this book. The overall, overall structure, you see grace emphasized with the gospel in the very beginning, then the law, and then the spirit. You see some of the key words mentioned there that reflect that theme. But I think this is God's strongest word in Galatians against legalism. It's God's strongest word against legalism. And it, it expresses the joy we have in Christ. The freedom, I'm sorry, the joy of the freedom we have in Christ. The freedom being the word there in that blank. Some have called it the Magna Carta of Christian liberty. I think there's, there's a word that Galatians has for, 
for the church in our context today. Many times we can go so far to legalism that there's no heart, no passion, no freedom in what, what's found in our relationship with Christ. At the same time, I see a developing trend in the church across our culture today that is embracing freedom in Christ at the expense of truth in Christ and leaving the law behind. And what we need to understand is that we are free. We are free to do what? We are free to obey the law. So they go together. And our greatest freedom is found in obeying the law. I run in the path of your commands, Psalm 119 says, for you have set my heart free. That's why I run in the path of your commands, because you freed me up to do that. And so we see the, the, the tension there between legalism and, and the freedom that we need to have in Christ. That's Galatians. Get next to Ephesians. Remember, prison epistle written from prison to church leaders in Ephesus. He was really close to them. He'd spent three years with them in the surrounding areas, probably a kind of a circular letter. It went to different areas as well, but mainly to the church in Ephesus. Three major themes. First of all, the unity of the church. The unity of the church, a major theme in Ephesians. Second, the victory of Christ. And this book, more than probably any other, emphasizes Christ and the church over and over and over again. The victory of Christ in particular, because witchcraft was rampant in Ephesus. And when Paul went there and he started preaching, there was a positive response to the gospel. And so some of these magicians started throwing their books away. And people were turning from idolatry. And all the silversmiths were getting run out of business. And they were not very happy with Paul. This is, a, this is one of the things we... We kind of use this kind of a theme for us, even when doing uh, ministry in the French Quarter down in New Orleans. It was like, we want to put some places out of business by letting the gospel take over because the gospel creates this need for, to follow him and, and abandonment of the things of this world. But that didn't make the silversmiths very happy. And so a riot came about and Paul had to leave. It's this, it's this battle. We've got to realize Ephesians represents between the God of this world and the, the, the God of this world and the true God between Christ and the spiritual powers of this world. We don't talk about that as much, but there are a lot of contexts around the world where that battle is very real. I know in, uh, in the context, the few times I have been over in some parts of Asia, that tension between fear and power. I remember in, in one particular house church setting, sitting there, and there was, there was about 20 30 believers in this room training in the word and a new lady comes one day and she's not come to faith in Christ but somebody invites her. She comes to faith in Christ that day and then she starts coming to the training. Here's this lady for the first time being exposed to this. While we're studying the Bible she says she realizes and comes to one of the church leaders after in one of our breaks and said you know I've got a bunch of idols and false gods that I've been worshiping that are set up all over my house. I probably need to get rid of those huh? And the church leader said, I think that'd be a good idea. And so we went over and we took those idols out. We prayed over the house. And we started the next training session with the smell of burning idols right outside the window. Isn't that a great way to study the word? The power of Christ over anything this world would set up as an idol. And that's the picture we've got in Ephesians, the victory of Christ. And the power of the Spirit. Key verses, you see them listed there. I hope we'll have time later on to dive into 1, 3 through 14, um, but we will see. Uh, the doctrine of the church and the practice of the church. Basically, the first three chapters, you see an emphasis on doctrine, and then it's very practical in the last three chapters. I would encourage you to mark every time you see love mentioned. Love is mentioned all over this book, over and over again, more than any other letter that Paul writes. And so I want, you to, I want to encourage you uh, relatively. 
um, I want to encourage you to, to emphasize, emphasize marking love. We are rooted and established in love. I pray that you might have power to grasp how long, how wide, how deep is the love of Christ for you. Ephesians 3, 17 through 19. Love is a major emphasis. And then mark each time you see the phrase in Christ or with Christ. 35 different times you'll see that mentioned, either in Christ or with Christ. Ephesians, then Philippians. Book of Philippians. Written from prison, again, the prison epistle, to the church at Philippi, which is a Roman colony. And this is a book we've been studying some here at, at Brook Hills earlier this year. It was delivered by Epaphroditus, God's gambler. It's the guy who, at the very end of chapter 2, is said to risk his life for the sake of the kingdom. He gambled his life. That's how he's described. The primary themes are joy and unity in Christ. Nineteen different times joy is mentioned throughout the book of Philippians. It's emphasized over and over and over again. The overall structure you see there, one of my favorite passages, or maybe one of the significant, most significant passages in the New Testament, is the Christ hymn in Philippians 2, 5 through 11. We studied this at Christmas, but this picture of Christ being in the very nature of God who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped but made himself nothing taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness being found in appearance as a man he humbled himself and became obedient to death even death on a cross therefore God exalted him to the highest place gave him the name that is above every name that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of the Father that picture of Christ gives us a totality. It is Jesus is God, being in the very nature of God. It is Jesus is man, took on the appearance of man. Jesus is Savior, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And then finally, Jesus is Lord. God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that was above every name. All four of those truths just highlighted in this picture of Christ. And it's a picture that is intended to show the people in Philippi an example of how they should live. So pay close attention to that. Study that passage. Get to know that passage. Enjoy Philippians. It's a breath of fresh air in Paul's letters. He doesn't seem to be mad about too much in Philippians, which is a good thing. It's just kind of like, oh, Paul is a nice guy. And he does, he does have joy in him, which he's got joy in other places, but it's just expressed differently. Listen for the heart of a disciple maker, too. It's a book that's written from the persecuted. It's Paul in prison to the persecuted. It's a Roman colony. And just like Paul was in Roman imprisonment, He's writing to some believers who are facing persecution. Philippians chapter 1, the very end of the book, verse 27 through 30, Paul says, it is granted to you to suffer on behalf of Christ. That's a weird word to use. You come to Christ, he says, here's a free gift, suffering. That's not the most effective evangelistic invitation to give in our culture today. If you come to Christ, I guarantee you that he will give you the gift of suffering. That's exactly what he's telling them in Philippians chapter 1. He talks at the end of, about the strength that's found in Christ. Incredible letter. Get to Colossians. Written to a church that a guy named Epaphras had founded and Paul had never even visited. Epaphras had been led to Christ. He had gone back to Colossae to found this church. Isn't this a great picture? All these other letters that Paul writes, they're written to churches he's intimately associated with. Paul hadn't even been to this particular place, hasn't even been to this church, and he's writing a letter. I'm praying that God would raise us up as a church at Brook Hills that would, that would impact churches all around this world indirectly, not even through us going there, but through us leading somebody to Christ who goes there and them leading somebody to Christ who goes there. And we, we've got things going on around the world that we don't even know about because of the multiplication of the gospel. That's the picture in Colossians. Never visited there. Paul is countering Gnostics. 
in Colossae who were denying the deity of Christ. Basically what a Gnostic would believe to summarize is that all matter is evil and that includes our humanity. And so if Christ was a human, then he couldn't have been God and man at the same time. So it's questioning the incarnation. And so what Paul does is he puts it in their face and says the primary theme is the sufficiency of Christ. Christ is in all, he is all and in all, and we are made full in him. The supremacy of Christ is all over the book of Colossians. Every major point deals with the sufficiency and supremacy of Christ. So see this is his sufficiency, and see I've listed there just a portrait of Christ in Colossians. He's the head of all things the Lord of creation, the author of reconciliation, the basis for our hope, the basis, the source of our power. He is our redeemer and reconciler. He is the embodiment of God. The fullness of Godhead dwells in him. He is the creator and sustainer of all things and the all-sufficient Savior. It's an incredible picture of Christ. As you read, mark some of these key words and notice the practical implications of a life that's sustained by Christ alone. It's not just showing the supremacy of Christ. It's showing how that affects the way we live. Book of Colossians, incredible portrait of Christ. Then you get to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians. Now, if you haven't memorized the books of the New Testament, and you've got Romans, big long one of the start, it's kind of one of the most influential books. Maybe that'll help you remember it's the first of Paul's letters. And you've got 1 and 2 Corinthians, and then you've got Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. My Sunday school teacher taught me to goats eat paper cups. And maybe you've learned something different, but G-E-P-C, you do whatever you want, but whenever I think of Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, it's goats eat paper cups. And so you got that. And then you get to 1 Thessalonians and you got the big T's and the medium-sized T's and then the little T, okay? 1 and 2 Thessalonians, 1 and 2 Timothy, and then Titus. This will most likely not translate into any other languages, but it's just for, this part's just for our sake tonight, okay? So that's, okay, it probably didn't even translate across this room. Okay. <laughs> First Thessalonians, just go on, Dave. Just teach us something. Start giving us your yeah, tips. All right, First Thessalonians, written from Corinth to a young church in Thessalonica. I think a, a fourfold purpose here. First of all, to encourage new believers. This is a young church that, that's emphasized. When Paul went here, his uh, problems erupted. His host in that city was arrested. And so Paul was basically taken out by secret late at night. And so he had to leave very abrupt. Very abrupt. And he didn't know what was going to happen. Didn't know what was going to happen with that church after he left. It reminds me, and Johnny, you'll appreciate this. One of the first books I read about uh, the church in China was talking about uh, how communism resulted in all of these American believers being kicked out of the country. And it talked about, and this was written by uh, Chinese house church leaders, this book, and it talked about how the many of the, the, the Americans or Westerners who had been kicked out were wondering, well, what, what's going to happen to the gospel in China now that communism's come in? How are they, how's it going to survive? And once, once China began to open back up and you see this swell of underground house churches everywhere and the church advancing and you realize, you know, maybe, maybe we're not as necessary as we think we are in the global mission. Maybe the Holy Spirit can do this job without us. We need to get involved in this global mission, not because he needs us, but because he loves us and he's given us the grace and privilege to be a part of it. So Paul writes to a church that he was wondering what's going to happen to these guys. So he's encouraging them to answer charges against Paul, number two. Number three, to explain the second coming of Christ. second coming of Christ is all over this book. 
and to warn against idleness. See, here's the deal. A lot of people in Thessalonica had heard about the second coming of Christ, and they'd quit their jobs. And they were just hanging around wondering <laughs> when he's going to come and, and just kind of enjoying life. And so Paul writes a book and says, get a job. That's the whole point of 1 Thessalonians is, guys, get a job. What are you doing? And so that's, that's why he wrote it. Key verses you see listed there. Um, overall structure, you look at chapter 1, verse 3, kind of gives us a, maybe a little bit of an outline of some of the themes that are introduced. A work produced by faith, a labor prompted by love, and an endurance inspired by hope. I would encourage you, go, when you read 1 Thessalonians, underline the end of every chapter because every chapter talks about the coming of Christ. It's really neat. Go and look at the end of every chapter in, in 1 Thessalonians, the coming of Christ is mentioned. At the very beginning of 1 Thessalonians, you see full circle disciple making on display. I, I listed it there. We, we see disciple making in Scripture in the life of ministry of Christ as sharing the word, showing the word, teaching the word, and serving the world. And you see it back to back to back to back at the very beginning of, of 1 Thessalonians. Um, and then in the joy of disciple making, Paul talks about how the, the Thessalonians were his crown and his joy. He lived for their sake. Pay close attention to how he emphasizes sanctification, which is holiness, and the coming of the Lord, which we've mentioned. Notice also the centrality of the word. I think Paul, throughout this book, and you see these instances where the word is mentioned, I think throughout this book he's saying, would you just get out of the way and let the power of the word do the work? And that's what, that's what the church does. The church says, your word will do the work. We are going to give ourselves to it. We're going to obey it. We're going to preach it. And we're going to trust that your word does the work. Second Thessalonians, written as a follow-up letter to the first one. Threefold purpose, to encourage believers who were facing increasing per persecution. I mean, it's a new faith in a culture that does not embrace that faith. That doesn't make it very easy. To exhort those who are idle to get back to work, work for the glory of Christ until he comes back, and to edify the believers in their pursuit of holiness. The tie between holiness and the second coming of Christ in this book. Note how 18 out of 47 verses deal in this book with the day of the Lord. There were some people in Thessalonica that were saying the day of the Lord had already come. And Paul counters that and says it's coming and we need to live in anticipation of it. Pay close attention to these words, judgment. Judgment is really emphasized. In 1 Thessalonians, you see an emphasis on the second coming of Christ. Christ is coming back for the church. When you get to 2 Thessalonians, you see more of an emphasis on Christ is coming back and judgment on those outside the church. So it's a very humbling picture. Let this book remind you to live with the expectation that it might be today. Do we live like that? Do you live like that? The second coming of Christ is a forgotten doctrine in, in the church in our culture and we need to remember and it's going to inform everything we talk about in the second half of what we do tonight we need to remember that he has promised that he's coming back and we are a people that live for that day and we long for that day but I'll preach about that later thank you for listening you can find more episodes from Secret Church and thousands of other free resources from David Platt at Radical.net